Hey, what's up, everybody? Thanks for tuning in and checking out the Hustle the Most podcast. This is episode 13. And today, we're going to talk about taking your side hustle, adding a little bit of passion, and creating a career. So, in the last episode, I talked a little bit about transitions and kind of how I attacked them and how I dealt with them by doing kind of all the things at once. We talked a little bit about jobs. We talked about what it's really like to be in a touring band, which is a whole lot of waiting and sitting around and getting really good at hanging out, kind of doing nothing. We also talked in the last episode about my friend Phil, who was a longtime, lifetime friend, and how he used to make body jewelry as a side hustle and sell them at punk rock and hardcore shows. And he did this while he was in college, and he actually started it by being a goldsmith in high school. I don't know if it was a goldsmith or actually goldsmith classes. We're going to find out, though, today, because Phil is here with me, and I got all kinds of great questions. We're going to ask him about taking your side hustle and adding the passion and turning it into a job. So here's my question. What's your side hustle and what's your passion? And is it possible to take those two things, smash them together and create a career that you could do for the rest of your life? There's probably a handful of people in the world that are pretty fortunate enough to make this happen for themselves. And Phil is actually one of those guys. So I'm super happy to have Phil in today. I think it's gonna be awesome. So Phil Renato, welcome to the Hustle the Most podcast. Hey, how's it going? <laughs> pretty good, man. Pretty good. Uh, super excited, man. This is, this is awesome because we've had a really long friendship and a long history and our paths have weaved in and out in so many different ways over the past 20... Yeah, about half our lives now, roughly. <laughs> yeah. We're getting old, man. Yep. So we met, what, 1997? I think so. Mm-hmm. Okay. Do you remember how we met? Yeah, I think we were in Mike Hastie's living room. I think uh, a bunch of bands that were a little bit too loud for me were playing downstairs <laughs> and... Uh, I was upstairs uh, hanging out for some reason and uh, had some body jewelry with me that I was selling. I guess that's why I was there, is to sell some body jewelry that I had. You were just like selling it? You just had it in your backpack I or I don't what? remember if a band that I knew was playing or not, but I remember, I'm pretty sure your band was playing Spit, and I know Earthmover was playing, um, and I think I caught a little bit of each, but you know, like the, both of those things are a little bit aggressive for Phil, and so... Uh, <laughs> I uh, I don't know. I don't remember exactly why I was there. I think that was the first time I was ever at Mike's house. It was before, I think it was before my band. Oh, no. That's why I knew Mike, because I had recorded there. Ah. Right. You recorded there because this is something we haven't talked about in a long time. Yeah. Is that you were in a band. I was in a band, yeah, for a little bit. And what fun. was the band all about? Uh, it was an interesting band. It was um, a little bit post-hardcore. Uh, we used to, I remember that we used to kind of uh, have nicknames for our songs based on which band they sounded like. So this is the Sunny Day song. This is the Far Side song. This is the whatever. And, uh, and they really did the music anyway, if not the lyrics and the vocals sounded a lot like those bands. Um, we, uh, but a bunch, we were very different people. Uh, a few of us were straight edge. Most of us were not. Some of us were not. Um, and, uh, we had this, we had this band for a little while. It was fun called Midori. What, what kind of music was it? Uh, I don't know. You, you, you're better at these things than I am. What kind of music was it? (laughs) From what I remember. So I remember, I remember having this weird kind of snap case esque vocal tinge to it. Okay. Uh, I remember it being very define, very defining of the times that were happening around that time. Um, it's funny that you should say that about the, the bands and the names of the songs because I had talked about in this earlier episode about it's not uncommon for bands in the studio to be like, if you're writing songs or working rehearsal, whatever, 
to be like, hey, play that one part that sounds like that or yeah. play this, yeah. play that Metallica sounding part. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of times the people are on the same page as far as like musical vocabulary. Yeah. They know exactly what you're talking about right. and they just pull it out like, oh, this part. And it's, it's like, oh, yeah, yeah. But it's interesting because we all hear things differently. And at some point you can be like, oh, play that one part that sounds like this band. And they're like, that's not at all how I wrote it. Right. And I think when you were talking with your friend Brandon, you guys were talking about somebody who kept like trying to solo over everyone. And I don't know what instrument you were talking about, <laughs> but I remember that our person who did that in my band, his name was Brian Reaper, and he was a drummer. And he just would hit his crash, I swear. Once Is the crash the big symbol? China. Yeah, that was one of them. Yeah, China's the upside down one. Looks like that one over there. Whichever one it was. Yep. Once he knew I didn't like the sound of it, he would hit the shit out of that thing. Like He would just <laughs> hit it like 40 times in a row and just start going bananas. Yeah, If you hit it 40 times in a row, that's excessive. Yes. That's, I mean, that's it was, excessive. It was either. always excessive. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty, pretty good, man. But I, I do remember that my one, my one side hustle within that band was trying to incorporate violin because I was taking violin lessons at the time, <laughs> trying to incorporate violin into this, and it did not work. I, first of all, I was no good at it um, as an instrument. Second of all, I couldn't create a new part for it. And third, that band just was not having it. So Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. So I, I think... If I dig hard enough, I'm going to try to pull a sample out oh, no. of Midori for this podcast. Sure. We're gonna, we'll throw it in. I don't have it exactly in front of me right now, mm-hmm. but when I have it, we're going to play it. And yeah, so, and that's good because you need to send them to me because remember, I had lost those ones you sent me. Yeah, I do, I do have them somewhere. I okay. can't tell you where they're at. Sure. They may be on a floppy drive somewhere. A floppy drive? <laughs> I doubt they're on a floppy, but, but on a zip disk they, maybe. They yeah. exist somewhere, yeah. and so we'll definitely have to, to insert them. So yeah, they could be on a floppy drive, right? Probably not. So while we were on fashion, um, you, in my previous episode, you, you gave the story about uh, my sport coat and shoes, my heterochromic shoe situation. Yeah, heterochromic, yes. yes. And so uh, <laughs> that was, uh, I, I do have some nice pictures of Midori playing with me and my overalls wearing a football jersey underneath. It's, it, I did not look the part of a hardcore singer at Did all. you have a flower something in your hair? I had, a, I had a giant sunflower hair clip holding my bun in the back of my hair. This is, this is pre, uh, pre-man bun. Well, you and I lived together. I had, I had a buzz cut, like a, you know, kind of short hair like I yeah, did yeah. now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I, so I, you know, I remember things the way that I remember them, right? Sure. We all remember things the way we hear them. We hear things the way we want. We remember them the way we want. But I feel like, and I've asked a handful of people about, you know, the things that, that I've talked about on the podcast, people that are mentioned in the podcast, and it's pretty accurate. So I, I get excited when I think about, uh, you know, things like our first day of school walking together yeah. and how I remember it to be. Mm-hmm. And I wish I had, I wish there was someone to do like the, take the photos of us on your first day of school, yeah. like you do with your kids. Right, right. First day of sixth grade, right? Last day of sixth grade, wherever it is. Well, there's a, in the opposite problem now in culture, right? Which is, it, you know, 20 years ago, you weren't taking the picture. Now you're taking so many pictures, you'd never find it again. Right. 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 So, yeah. I like to tell people that the, the almost awesome thing about having 15,000 photos on your phone uh-huh. is having 15,000 photos on your phone. Yeah, yeah. The worst thing about having 15,000 photos on your phone is having 15,000 15, on your phone. Yeah. 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 It's, the thing. it's the same thing because you can't, you can't find it. And if you did find it, uh, you'd spend an hour looking for it. And by the time you there found was, it, the conversation's over. There were maybe six or eight years there where I was really good about tagging 
things in Flickr and having really good. So, you know, if you ask me if certain things um, from my life, I probably tagged it with something where I can find it. But uh, a lot of other stuff, I'd be lucky to find it. Yeah. I mean, I think Apple's doing a really good job now of figuring out like places and facial recognition. Yeah. And, yeah. It's great. And dog. Um, even yeah. It's like not the, always accurate. Yeah, yeah. Like the timeline even. Yeah. You know, my, my thing is like, if I take a photo, I'm like, oh, it was around the holiday. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll just look for a holiday of like, 2017, uh-huh. 2018, you know, until I find it. And eventually, if I find it, I find it, right? Yeah. All right, so let's jump back in real quick to, we met in 97, mm-hmm. and you're playing, this was after you played in a band? Yeah, so now that I think about it, my band was already broken up by that point. So I met you, I'm back at my Casey's house for whatever reason, because there's a, probably some show going on. Yep. Well, there's a show going on. Hardcore show. And, uh, and I have what I recall to be a very large fishing tackle box. <laughs> um, filled with stainless steel body jewelry, and I would bring it to various shows. Usually, I didn't travel to shows just to sell jewelry. That was something I did when I was going to shows for other reasons. So that's what I don't remember is who was playing that I really had to see because I didn't know about Spit yet and Earth Mover. I definitely did not go to see on purpose, even though I like those guys. Right. So actually, I think if you, I don't know if you remember, there was a show that that Spit played down there at that house with. I don't know if I remember. I don't remember if Earthmover played. I imagine that they didn't have shows at their house that they didn't play. Okay, I think yeah. it's probably common yeah. that they would play every show that they had at the, at their house. Mm-hmm. But there was a guy named Jason Mammon that was in the band called Tank. Remember that band name? Sounds familiar, but I don't remember the band. So my buddy Kevin, who actually ended up being in Walls Jericho with me later, and then uh, Chris Muller, who was also end up being the bass player of Earthmover later. Uh, that there were that was the singer of his band of their band and and we play the show in the basement and the basement had these like steel joists that went mm-hmm. all the way across side to side and um i remember he like was going crazy like doing something moshing whatever and he like hit his head mm. and he went down and mm-hmm. he was like on the ground and you know the show stops like oh you know he's and he one of those things where he wakes up and he w- and he starts swinging because he's not sure what happened right just like <laughs> it was it was crazy hit me <laughs> and i and i was probably like I think I was, you know, 17 or 18 and like, I, I had never really seen that before. And like, I had seen some crazy stuff in my mm-hmm. life, but I had never seen anyone wake up out of a dead sleep and start swinging. Yeah. yeah. And I was just like, oh, like, I, didn't really, right, right. I didn't really know what to do. So you probably were upstairs if this was happening during the time. Can't imagine you were downstairs, like moshing it up. Yeah. And that would be my normal way with, when I go to a show, I am pretty much in and darting in and out, you know, seeing a couple minutes and then going out to do something else. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. So I talked earlier in the last episode about how you kind of had this table set up in front of like the, the living room, basically mm-hmm. the hallway that would go into the living room was like your, like the living room was basically like your merch area. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, and you're in there in there selling buy jewelry. And you used to make this body jewelry in your apartment. Is that, do I remember uh, so that? I made it at various places. Um, so you had mentioned earlier about um, my high school experience. So I was not a good student in high school. <laughs> and uh, one of the consequences of that was I had to take a co-op class. And that co-op class meant I had to get some sort of job. And I got some sort of credit for getting that job. And that job happened to be in a jewelry store. So I had like one semester of like helping a goldsmith, right? But I had just enough experience with it to think I knew what I was doing a little bit, to think I understood the issues. And when I first saw body jewelry, I thought, oh, that's like a big jump ring that's been polished. I get that. I could make those. So I took jewelry at Eastern Michigan University 
um, in order to have access to that lab um, and started making it in school, actually. Um, so which is to say I didn't turn it in for credit, but like I would just, you know, use some of that time to make some body jewelry. And then eventually, yeah, I made it when I lived at the Hamtramck house. I made it in various apartment situations. Batches of that stuff would take a few weeks because of the way I kind of used tumblers to help with the finishing process. What made you decide to want to sell it? Like you were making it, were you making it for yourself at first? Yeah. So I, um, I had kind of apprenticed with a piercer for a little while and was doing body piercing and really just wanted cheaper jewelry, um, you know, to, um, to be able to lower the price of piercing. So the goal I kind of had was to make a piercing $25 all in, including jewelry, right? So that was pretty cheap, which was cheap at the time, right? I mean, I'm sure it's cheap even now, but it was cheap at the time. And, um, so, you know, instead of paying, I think the wholesale price for a captive bead ring, you know, was maybe $9, $12 at the time. Um, I, you know, was able to wholesale them to other people for $6, let's say, or $5, which meant I was able to make them for myself even cheaper than that. Right. So it was really, you know, like a, a way to enable more piercing. So, so you, you had taken this class Mm -hmm. and learned about more about metals. Yep. Right. And then took a class at Eastern and. So you could have access to these machines. Yep. So you basically took a class, you can have access to all the things that are yep. there, that, opposed to obviously buying them, right? Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't, I, I, you know, so having worked that short period of time when I was in high school with, a, with the, you know, with that equipment, I wouldn't have even known what it was to buy. I just knew, like, take the ring over to the buffer, but I wouldn't have known where to go to buy a buffer, right? Right. So taking it in college, I had access to a professor who I could ask those kinds of questions. And I did end up buying some of that stuff. So the basement of Hamtramck house had a small workspace, which had tumblers and a grinder and a buffer and even an anodizing setup when I started making titanium jewelry. And this is all stuff you had to like go and find in source and buy, load in your car or truck or whatever. Yeah. I mean, most of it wasn't very big. Yeah. But yeah. But were, still, it's... I would have small versions. I mean, some of it I just bought at Sears. So what I'm kind of driving at is that a lot of people that want to start businesses always have these barriers, right? So for example, you know, if you're like, oh, I have this great idea, I want to make body jewelry. And then you say, well, I don't really know how to, how to, how to mold metal, right? I don't know how to shape metal. I don't know really anything about it. So then you're like, okay, the idea dies, right? A lot of people now run into the same problem where they're like, oh, I got this great idea for a thing. I'm going to make a widget. And they're like, oh. I need a website. Well, I don't know how to build a website. Well, I need a logo. I don't know how to use Photoshop. So their ideas die because of the barriers that they put in front of them, right? So you had these kind of barriers in front of you. So you've actually went out and learned a little bit about it, learned about the machinery, and then acquired some of your own machinery, regardless if it was cheap or small, you still made the effort, right? And I did it slowly over time, right? I did it iteratively. I didn't try to, you know, it was never a big business anyway, but, you know, like in the, in the end, you know, I think I maybe made 10,000 of those pieces of jewelry, something like that. And, you know, in the beginning, I was only making a few a week, right? And then towards the end, I'm making hundreds at a time, you know? So um, and that's over a period of two or three years. So, yeah. But 10,000 is a lot though. Like 10,000... It sounds, it sounds like a, oh, I just made 10,000 of these. Like you just roll it off your tongue. But like I, I'm, I make things for a living, right? Mm-hmm. And I've never made 10,000 of anything. Like, mm-hmm. you know, replicas, obviously, right. and, and injection molds. And stuff yeah, like they, that, weren't 10, 000, they weren't 10,000 original things, but yes. Right, but right, 10,000 yeah, yeah. things that you held and each one sure. was in your hand. Yeah, right. Right, at one point. Yep. Buffing it, whatever it is you were doing to it, right? Yeah, some of it, I, some of it I was sending out for certain services. So like threaded barbells, I didn't have the technology to thread, especially um, the balls themselves. So I would send out to machine shops to have some aspects of them worked on. So I had a hustle going on 
with that stuff in terms of streams of of material coming in and parts yeah so crazy man that's and that's i mean that's what like you know that's what hustle the most is all about like things like that you're sourcing things you're taking it you're finding need i mean obviously jewelry was pretty expensive at the time and i think that you know you probably did okay i mean when i remember like you sold a lot of this stuff yeah, and it, I mean, it, it enabled me to, you know, finish restoring my car. I, um, I, would, I didn't go to an expensive college anyway, but I never really wanted for money when I was in college. Even some of the jobs I had within college, I didn't need the money from them. I just wanted to learn the thing, you know? So. Yeah, no, that makes sense. But so you started the company, right? Generic sure. Jewelry. Yep. And I remember your stuff looking like really legit. And I remember that being one of the things that, of course, I didn't, I think at the time I was 17, you know, it was really in a, in what you call, I think at one point, a, a crack baggie. What was it? What did you call yeah, it? They're like two inch crack bags. So yeah. little, little tiny, you know, bags. <laughs> and at the time, if you walked into a jewelry store, what you were likely to find was a little crack bag thing with a white um, card that had either been made on a Xerox machine or had been like letter pressed or something, but it had like a little bit of black text on it, like maybe a black border with some sort of doodle, doodle in the corner. Yeah. Um, I would do from the very beginning like full color little backplates for these things. So like I would go to the, basically it was, I would go to the library, I'd find some like, you know, Mayan art and Charlie Brown and I'd mix them together in Photoshop <laughs> and use my like $600 little super expensive early Epson photo printer and uh, print out, you know, these things, cut them up by hand and stick them in the back of the baggies. So yeah, my stuff, I don't know if it looked better than, but it definitely stood out. It looked different than everyone else's stuff. And I kind of, rem- I mean, I kind of remember that. Like I can yeah. remember seeing it, of course, you know, at the time, keep in mind we're at a punk rock, hardcore, like yeah. house show, right? Yeah. Wasn't really expecting to see jewelry sitting there. Uh, but that, it's weird because that, you know, that um, interaction between you and I kind of spawned our friendship. Sure. Like, yeah. had I never, had I not been like, oh, yo, look at these rings and being excited mm-hmm. about them, I probably wouldn't have bought them and we probably yeah. wouldn't be sitting here. Yeah, right. right? I mean, this yeah. is, it's weird. Like, the things you think about that happened, you know, 25 years ago, kind of, you know, butterfly effect style going to yeah, for what sure. it is now. You know, it's, for it's. Sure. It's pretty cool, man. Yeah, and I would not have ended up, you know, besides our relationship, I wouldn't have ended up doing much of what I do now if I hadn't made some of those same choices, if I hadn't met some of the people, you know, who were helpful to me and who were, you know, and if people hadn't bought jewelry for one thing. So, yeah. No, that's, that's, and that makes sense, right? It's, yeah, yeah. It's weird. I had this, this conversation. Um, I shouldn't say it's a conversation because it's a podcast. It's a conversation with myself, right? Mm-hmm. And so I was talking in one of the last episodes about, um, how these weird interactions that we have or these pivotal moments that we have where we make this, we have this option or this, this idea that's presented to us and it just changes everything for us. I'm like an inflection point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you know, these, these weird, um, like just moments that happen and they completely change the trajectory of everything you're doing. Yeah. And you know? sometimes you don't recognize it at the time, which is tricky. Yeah. So I think, you know, we'll jump into, I think we'll jump into a little bit what you do now maybe a little bit later, but let's, let's talk about real quick. So you went to undergrad at Eastern where we went together and you went there for painting or what was it? So, um, I was a horrible high school student. Like I barely made it out of high school. And so Eastern was a little bit like an access school. It was a place that you could get into. And, uh, I believe I actually started in graphic design. Uh, and then I was, um, English for a little while. Uh, then I came back and was painting and take, having taken that metals class, one interesting thing that happened to that class is I think I got a C plus in that class. And 
it was because I wasn't taking it very seriously. <laughs> I was using all my time to make all this crap that my professor didn't care about because it wasn't original. I'm just copying crap that's already right. being made. And um, having gotten a C plus, that really hurt because I had been getting all A's in college so far. And <laughs> I was really turning my life around. And here's this thing that I should be good at that I'm not good at because I'm not applying myself. And he showed me a book by this artist named Albert Paley that completely transformed what I thought about jewelry, which is to say, I finally saw this ornamental, trivial, nominal, you know, thing as something that has tremendous amounts of artistic potential, right? Here are people who have expressed ideas using this material and process that are amazing, right? That are completely blowing my mind. And so from that point forward, I ended up finishing in metals and in painting, but I took it seriously, right? Once I saw this thing that transcended all other, you know, similar things, um, I took it much more seriously. So yeah, so I finished in 99, I believe, while we were living together. God, it's crazy it's to think that was 20... Years 20 ago. years ago. Yep. 20 years ago. Wow. It's, uh, it's awesome because it, it's, it's the things that have happened in 20 years are just, are just beyond. Yeah. I mean, at that moment, if you recall, we were getting ready to be afraid that the whole world was going to melt down because of the <laughs> Y2K crisis, right? <laughs> so, and that didn't happen, right? Uh, it mostly did not happen. Okay, I correct. just was yeah, making just sure making that we're sure. on the same page. I mean, either that or, or we <laughs> shifted um, strings in the multiverse. And, right. Yeah. Right. So there is no spoon, right? Right. And, yes, yeah. exactly. So we're really just in the matrix. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Perfect. I was hoping I was in there anyway. Um, what's that thing in Grandma's Boy when he's like, hey. I've never I'm, seen Grandma's Boy. Oh, it's awesome. There's a part where he's like, there's a guy who dresses like he's in the matrix. Oh, and, nice. And, uh, and one of the other guys asked him, hey, how much do clothes cost in the matrix? <laughs> like, it's just... It's just silly. It's a good right? question, actually. It yeah. is a good question. Yeah. So it's funny, like right after you um, finished school, you went out to the West Coast, not too long after. Yeah, about a year after. Okay, a year mm -hmm. after. And it was about, I think you went out there, what year did you go out there? So I was out there from 2000 to 2002. Okay. Yeah, because I went out there. In, in Seattle. I yeah. went out there in 2001. Right. Yeah. And you were there, you and I were there at the same time, mm -hmm. which is crazy. We got to go and like skateboard and. Yep. Ride a sweetest metal, like four <sighs> foot mini ramp I've ever ridden in my life. It's yeah. still, I think it's still there. Oh, I want to go. That'd be worth a flight just to go. It's still good. The, the funny thing about that ramp is that at certain times of the day, so this was in Tacoma at Foss High School. If you were skating that ramp at certain times of the day and you fell on the ramp, the burn you would get was so much worse than falling. Mm -hmm. And you would see people fall and they would jump up so fast. Like you've never even seen someone. Did we say it was steel? Yeah. Oh, it's definitely yeah, yeah. steel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was steel and it had been painted at one point, but the paint wore off. Yeah. And I mean, there's a chance you'd fall down and, and end up with the gangrene, but I think, <laughs> the gangrene. I think for the most part, it was probably pretty smooth and, and, and pretty good, but yeah. that ramp was fun. Yeah. Yeah. That was a, that was a good one. And so you ended up at UW. Yep. Right. UW is a pretty cool school. Yeah, it was awesome. So, you know, um, I was a terrible high school student. I was a pretty good undergraduate student. And the goal was to keep moving forward and up, right? right? So I ended up going to, you know, one of the schools that we think of as kind of a public Ivy. So a little bit like U of M or something, mm -hmm. but University of Washington. And uh, I got an MFA in uh, kind of an interesting fork discipline called uh, metal design. Is that a pun? Ah, oh, that is a pun. <laughs> I didn't intend it that way. Yeah, but it's it was an interesting discipline in that it wasn't quite metalsmithing or jewelry or design. 
It was some interesting hybrid between all of those things. And you came out of school. What were you trying to do? So by that point, I had basically decided I wanted to teach. Um, there were aspects of academia and its culture that I really responded to and really was interested in. And so I decided to take a risk and try to teach, which is risky because there's maybe 100 people who come out of my discipline a year looking for a job. And on a good year, there's five jobs. Wow. Right. So um, <laughs> that year, I believe there were nine. So it was an excellent job. So it was an excellent success, market. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so and then, you know, my, my kind of fallback was um, I thought I would go to um, L.A. with my then wife, who was an actress, and I would try to work on things like movie props, um, which would have been awesome given what I was interested in with my work at the time. Movie props. You think I wanted like, to work with Stan Winston, basically, oh. at Stan Winston. And Stan Winston, is that, uh, is that the guy that made all the Marvel movies? I'm actually not sure how much, you know, what, what Stan Winston is up to today. I'm pretty sure he's dead. But that firm, um, I think, yes, I think they're mainly known for making giant creatures. Um, but I would have been interested in making things more like, imagine the, um, the garments and weapons that they'd make in the modern Star, Star Trek movies. That's what I would have wanted to make. Lightsabers, stuff like, in Star Wars too. Okay. Lightsabers, stuff like that. So. You know that's Stan Lee, right? Not Stan Winston. That does the Marvel stuff. No, I didn't know that's what you were getting at, <laughs> but I didn't confuse those two people. I, I am aware. I set up for the joke and then yeah, it just yeah. kind of went. I'm, I'm, it's because I'm slow. No, and yeah. it just it just didn't take. Yeah. It's a bad joke. It's a bad joke. It's my mistake. So, so your goal is to teach when you came out of school. Mm-hmm. Like I think a lot of people, you know, especially getting out of art school, have that what now, you yeah. know, kind of thing. Especially where, you know, a lot of people that went through the program, when I went through it's the, you know, all right, now what am I going to do? What mm-hmm. am I, what's the next move, right? Yeah. And I think that, I think a lot of those people probably turn to teaching as well. I don't know. I, I don't know how many of them really would like to, but I think there are many more who would like to than will ever have the opportunity. And it's not because of their skills necessarily. It's just the market is so mismatched to the number of people earning a you know, terminal degree in art. Yeah. But yeah. yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. That makes sense. But on, on some level, I think that's true, which is to say like lots of not just artists, but designers and people in general find ways to give back through some form of teaching. Right. So, you know, things like coming in lecturing or a continuing studies course or adjuncting. You know, we have some amazing adjuncts where, you know, where you went to school and where I teach um, who are doing it. I'm sure not for the money. Um, but because they really enjoy working and helping to train that next generation of usually designers, but also fine artists. Yeah. I think it's funny. I think they actually nailed a perfect segue, which is, um, so we're going to jump into real quick, like all the things that we've learned from this, this experience and these experiences we've had in the past, you know, handful of years, but real quick, tell everyone listening, like what you do now. Sure. So I'm a professor of metals and jewelry design at Kendall College of Art and Design. Um, I actually teach about half or two-thirds of my load in industrial design. I teach mainly technical subjects for industrial design, so things like CAD and occasionally things like materials and processes. And for metals and jewelry, I actually typically teach the design and then the like thesis-level courses. I don't really teach much metalsmithing proper anymore. I have an adjunct who's amazing at teaching that. This is the crazy part. So the idea of this episode that we talked about in the beginning was that you take your side hustle and you add passion and you create a career for yourself. And this dude did it. So he made jewelry in apartments and in basements and at school. He sold them at shows and all over the place, selling to wholesale distributors. And now he's actually teaching what he started out doing in his basement. Like, how crazy is that? Like, if you think about it for a second, imagine, you know, the things that you do in your basement, like 
you're doing woodworking, you're doing painting, you're building drums, whatever it is you're doing. And, you know, 20 years later, like you're doing that for your job. Like that just seems so crazy and so awesome at the same time. And I mean, how's that, how does that feel? Yeah. I mean, it feels good. I mean, it, one thing I think about when I think about that work that I was doing compared to what I teach, they're, they're very different in a lot of ways, which is <laughs> to say, and I think I've mentioned this to you before, like I wouldn't necessarily tolerate my students making things like I was making back then only because now I have this bias towards innovation and creativity, right. which is to say like I wasn't the only modern amount of innovation I had was price point and maybe packaging. And at this point, that seems so hollow to me yeah, compared yeah, to no, even, sure. you know, my moderate expectations of things like style and form, you know? No, that makes sense. Yeah. It feels great though. I mean, I'm, I'm happy to have made some of the decisions I made. So I feel like, I feel like we have a lot more to talk about. You know, we try to cut things around 25. We're a commuter podcast, man. So we're going to try to cut it. You want to come back for another episode? Sure. Absolutely. That'd be awesome. We can finish the story and talk more about um, I think what we're going to do the next one is talk about, we talked earlier about how our paths kind of intertwined. So a handful of years later, I actually went back to school and got a BFA in industrial design and Phil was my professor. So <laughs> it's crazy to talk about it now. <laughs> so my college roommate ended up being my professor. So just let that one sink in. We're going to talk about that on the next one, but let's do, uh, let's talk about what we learned. So, you know, what did you learn from, what did you learn from starting a business? In, in, in making that your side hustle and you obviously don't do it anymore. So you obviously learned that you maybe didn't like it or yeah. was not worth the squeeze or what? No, I mean, I think I, I definitely learned a lot and I feel like I provided a value. Um, one thing I learned from it is that you can't do the same thing forever, or at least that particular business was not going to last forever, both because it wasn't intellectually fulfilling for me, but also because the world around me was changing, right? right? At this moment, I was I was selling a single piece of jewelry wholesale cheap at five bucks. Right now, that same piece of jewelry, I could probably buy a hundred of on eBay shipped from China for five bucks. Yeah. So I wouldn't have been able to survive doing what I was doing. So, you know, I think I changed at the right time. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. I mean, I think, you know, over over the years, I mean, we've talked about a lot of episodes about things that I've learned. And I think one of the things I've learned from you is that you can actually take something that, that you're really passionate about and excited about, and you can turn it into something. And, you know, a lot of people don't do that. A lot of people will, again, we talked about those barriers that people put in front of them. Well, I could never do that because, right? In 2019, with the internet the way it is and things like, like, like Fiverr and 99 Designs, and I think there are so many outlets and ways that you can actually get things done for you where you can focus on like, you know, being that creative person that's coming up with ideas. You can hire out people to, to create a business plan. You can hire people to create a logo. You can even hire people to do modeling for you, right? Mm -hmm. Like modeling products or, um, you know, building products or prototypes, whatever it is, right? There's not anything that really, and I think back then probably you could too, but now the people are just more accessible and there's more of them and they're just so much easier to find. I mean, do you think that's probably accurate? Oh, absolutely. And maybe when we talk next time, um, we can talk about the difference. If you're really interested in nostalgia versus now, um, the difference between finding a supplier in the 90s and finding a supplier for something now. It's amazingly different. And we're talking about like jewelry and metal, not drugs. Uh, <laughs> I just want to make sure. I, you know, those two things might, <laughs> drugs might be different, but they might be changed too. I really don't know. <laughs> Maybe they're the same. 
I mean, we've talked about crack bags. We talked about right. suppliers. So I just want to make sure that we're I on did the same make page. some jewelry one time that was really tiny, and then I would sell in one-inch bags, which were really crack bags. Right. Like, they really were what you'd find cracking little tiny, tiny bags. They were adorable. That's pretty good, man. All right, so we're gonna cut it. We're gonna have Phil come back for the next episode. We're gonna talk about how I was his student. I was his star student. Was I a star student? There's silence. There's just dead silence. He's still here. He's still here, but there's dead silence. <laughs> man, so good. I'll tell you, man, doing a podcast with one of your best friends in the whole world is like the best feeling. So good. So much fun. Can't wait for the next one. As always, thank you for listening to the Hustle the Most podcast. This was episode 13. My special guest, lifetime friend, Phil Renato, medals and jewelry chair at Kendall College of Art and Design. And of course, for more stories and photos, connect with me at hustlethemost.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you on the next one. Mm-hmm.